to hear the guy who does it all the time. But I, I appreciate the uh, opportunity and humbled by the responsibility uh, to share God's word because we come here together not for uh, a person, uh, but we come here for uh, to hear the word and uh, hear it communicated. So recently I was uh, gifted by someone a uh, set of the Gospels uh, in the form of reader's Bibles. And uh, had, does anybody know what a reader's Bible is? It's like they remove the verse and chapter breaks and they just break things up into sections like you would a you know, normal novel that you're reading or something like that, a different kind of book. And it kind of makes you read it in a different way because so often like when I've grown up studying the Bible, I'll read like a chapter or sometimes even a few verses and like stop and, and think about that. But when you read it like you'd read another book, like I wouldn't sit down and read a biography and be like, okay, I'm only going to read a few paragraphs of this biography and then put it away and think about it. And usually it, we tear through other books. So I sat down with the Gospel of Matthew and read it in uh, a few sittings. And it's amazing the different themes that you see when you read big chunks of Scripture. It's not that reading big chunks is better than focusing on a uh, few verses. There's benefits to both. Um, but one thing that jumped out at me was the multiple times where Jesus brings up this quote uh, to people where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Um, so why does Jesus choose this quote and why does he bring it up multiple times uh, to the Pharisees? Uh, let's examine both of these situations and uh, have a more thorough look at the concept of mercy. First of all, we know that Matthew is the writer uh, of the book that we're reading. And uh, so we think he must be a pretty good guy because he wrote this gospel to us. But where do we meet Matthew? Jesus calls him from being a tax collector. And uh, a tax collector uh, doesn't mean a lot to us. Today, but to people at that time, uh, a Jewish tax collector was a really hated person because they were somebody who was Jewish but worked for the Roman government in uh, forcing the Jewish people to give their taxes to Rome. Uh, so they were part of the oppression of their own people group. And uh, why would somebody turn their backs on their own people group like that? because they're also able to become very rich by taking anything above and beyond the normal tax rate to enrich themselves. And uh, so they were very, uh, very like secular, sinful people. They didn't hold to the, uh, the religion of Judaism. They were instead Jewish only by their name, but their culture was very, uh, very Roman. So um, this is the kind of uh, scummy guy that uh, Jesus calls uh, to follow him. When Jesus calls each of his disciples to follow him, uh, he calls them and he calls us to deny themselves, to leave their way of life and become like him. He calls fishermen to leave their nets and tax collectors to leave their booths. And he calls militants to leave their militia. So in order to get to know Jesus better, Matthew follows him, but then he invites Jesus over to his home. And Jesus uh, partakes of a meal with him. Doesn't seem like a big deal to us. We have like business lunches with people all the time that we've never even met before. We just meet people up for meals. But 
especially at this time, this is a big deal. It's a very intimate thing to share a meal with someone, and especially with the Jewish ceremonial laws, because um, what went on with uh, the Pharisees was that they had all these extra rules about how the food should be prepared and how they should wash themselves and prepare themselves. And so if you went to a tax collector's house, uh, the people there are not washed the right way and cleaned up the right way, and the food that you're eating is probably not cleaned up in the right way. So this is an icky situation for the Pharisees, and they see Jesus just dining with these sinners. Uh, So they ask the disciple, why does your master eat with tax collectors and sinners? And before the disciples can come up with a good answer, Jesus overhears them. He bails out the disciples. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Doctors spend most of their time around sick people. I don't think we'd make a leap of logic to say that people are sick because they spend time with doctors so much. (laughs) We'd say a doctor's job is to spend time with sick people, to treat them, to heal them, to serve them. A doctor that will only see healthy patients, we'd say, is a pretty terrible doctor. Um, In chapter 15 and verse 24, Jesus says that he has come to seek and to save the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep are those that have been discouraged by the legalism of the of the scribes and the Pharisees and uh, have just kind of become like Matthew, Jewish in name, but not holding to the law of Moses anymore. So does it mean that they equate uh, Jesus spending time with sinners to the idea that, well, he must be a sinner? But is Jesus being like the sinners that he's around, or is he calling them to be like him? Jesus always calls the people that he's with to be like him. And this is a good litmus test for our relationships. Um, And we tell uh, young people this, that uh, are you becoming more like the people around you, or are they becoming more like you? Hopefully, they're becoming more like you if you're like Jesus. He says in verse 13, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. This is, uh, Jesus has like a lot of sick burns on the Pharisees, and this is like a good one. He's like, "Um, why don't you go away for a while and think about this, and then come back to me and let me know what you think. Uh, You know this, Uh, The Pharisees would have memorized, you know, probably the entirety of the Old Testament committed to memory. And so they know exactly what he's quoting from here. He's quoting from the book of Hosea. And so he's telling them, this thing that you have memorized, this thing that you already know, why don't you go away and think about it a little longer and then come back to me. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Why does he choose that verse? Why does he choose mercy? We'll go back to Hosea after we look at chapter 12, where Jesus brings this up again. In chapter 12, verse 1, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. 
And he said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those that were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So what's going on here is that Jesus and his disciples are traveling, and they're going through this field, and the disciples pick some grain and eat it for a snack because they're hungry. So are they being accused of stealing? Uh, no, that's not the case. Uh, in Under Jewish law, it was actually uh, commanded that farmers left portions of their field for the travelers, for the poor, for the widows to be able to have something to eat. So they're perfectly fine with picking some grain to eat uh, for a snack. No, the Pharisees are accusing them of harvesting on the Sabbath day, uh, which which is unlawful. Um, but it's so nitpicky, right? Like if you picked a few blackberries from a bush, would you call that harvesting? Like, you know, they're being really, they're really trying to split hairs over this. But the Pharisees existed to split hairs on issues like this. They loved it. In chapter 23, Jesus tells them they're so nitpicky that when they strain their water through a sieve to make sure that there's no, not even a gnat in there, which is like the smallest unclean animal, what they end up doing is swallowing a camel, which is like the largest unclean animal, because they miss the entire purpose of why they have the law. What's the purpose of the Sabbath day? It's for God to show his mercy to his people. For his people to rest and to trust that, although there's always more work to do, they needed a day of rest for their bodies, for their souls, and to focus on the Lord. And they needed that, uh, that show of trust by leaving more work for Monday. Monday will take care of itself. They're commanded in the Ten Commandments to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy, but that's kind of vague, right? That doesn't say this and this and that, right? You might ask yourself, like, is it okay to mow the lawn on the Sabbath day? Or is it okay to watch football or buy a gallon of milk? Or should I maybe just pray for 12 hours on the Sabbath day? Like, you know, there's a lot of choices to be made about how to honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And uh, that leaves a lot of gray areas. And the Pharisees didn't like gray areas. They wanted to know they were doing what is right. So what they did was they took the law and they said, okay, we don't want to even accidentally like break these laws. So you ever go bowling with the kids and you put up the bumpers, and maybe some of you adults still use the bumpers. Uh, <laughs> and it's they make the lane even narrower than it was designed, so that there's no way of you not getting the ball to the end of the lane. Uh, there's no way of you getting uh, in the gutter, because you've set up something that's even tighter than what the normal parameters are. And that's what the Pharisees come up with to avoid sinning, is they create even more laws on top of the laws that God gave. 
Uh, but in doing that, what are they doing? They're missing the entire purpose of the law. It's there for mercy. So Jesus says that David, when he's hungry and when he's being chased by Saul, he goes to the tabernacle and he takes this bread that was set out for the priests um, as an offering to God. And he takes that bread and he eats it uh, and he gives it to his men. And that was absolutely against the law. And yet uh, God says it's not sin for him. And why is that? Because God's purpose of protecting his anointed was greater than sitting a loaf of bread out uh, and not touching it. You know, I was thinking this week about uh, my grandpa when he uh, was 12 or 13 and he was growing up in uh, West Virginia. His dad had an accident and needed to go to the hospital and it was just the two of them. So at 12 years old, he drives a car for the first time into the hospital. Now, who would punish, you know, uh, punish that child for trying to save his dad, right, and, and drive him into the hospital? It's against the law, you know, and yet the importance of that moment was that uh, was greater than what the law was. The purpose of the law was to protect people and save people. And, uh, and so that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, you have laws about the Sabbath day, and who works harder on the Sabbath day? Than the priests, right? The priests work sun up to sundown on the Sabbath day, nonstop, hard, sweaty labor, and yet they break. So in that way, they break all the laws of the Sabbath day, and yet they're obviously guiltless in that. He says you're missing the point. So Jesus brings up Hosea chapter six again. He goes, "I told you before to think about what mercy over sacrifice means and what it looks like." And you still don't get it. So when I read that, I go, I want to get it. Because <laughs> when Jesus is bringing something up multiple times to somebody, I don't want to miss it like they did. So let's look at the text that he quotes from Hosea chapter 6. God's talking to the tribes of Ephraim and Judah here. And he's condemning them for how fickle their hearts have been. Hosea chapter 6, and this is verse 4. What shall I do with you, O Ephraim, and what shall I do with you, O Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud, like the dew that goes early away. It's like they love God, but sometimes. And it's like the dew on your lawn. At the first sign of heat, or with the passage of much time, it's gone. And that's what their love for God was like. Uh... In verse 6, he says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God greater than burnt offerings. So the Greek word that Jesus uses that gets translated as mercy, the Hebrew word for that is translated steadfast love. And that's a little odd to us, right? Because we think mercy and love, we don't necessarily equate those things really directly. Um, so why are love and mercy like interchangeable words here. Steadfast love means a love that is not situational. It's not conditional. Uh, and mercy is a form of love that's not situational, right? Mercy is loving you when you don't deserve to be loved. Uh, mercy is not 
granting you the punishment that you deserve or the justice that you deserve. Uh, so, in fact, steadfast love is a great definition of mercy. Love that doesn't change, that isn't situational. How many times have we messed up and yet God doesn't drop the hammer on us or quit on us? That's mercy. And the book of Hosea is all about mercy or about God's steadfast love. God tells Hosea uh, to go and marry this prostitute named Gomer. And he tells Hosea that she's going to uh, not stop living as a prostitute, but you are going to love her, forgive her, uh, protect her, clothe her, welcome her back so many times, bind her wounds. This is the mercy that Jesus is calling on when he said that good doctors go to the sick people, that the good shepherd goes after lost sheep, and that the laws and commandments of God exist to give life to his people and not to crush them. We're going to get to how we enact mercy towards others, but if we don't get God's mercy towards us, then we're not going to be able to give that out to others. So I know many of us have a really hard time with uh, forgiving ourselves or with thinking that we're good enough or thinking uh, that we've done enough. We often wake up. I woke up one morning this week early and I was thinking about preaching and I was just thinking, I'm not, I'm not worthy to do this or there's no reason why people should listen you know, uh, to what I have to say and like uh, regrets from the past and guilt and shame and things like that come in and they paralyze you from doing, uh, from, from, you know, doing what's right. And so you lay there in bed and you think, okay, well, I'm just going to buckle down. I'm just going to try a little harder and I'm going to restrict in these ways. I'm going to do this, this, and that. And, uh, and then I'll be someone who's worthy of serving the Lord, worthy of God's mercy. But that's not how it works. In order to get past our failures, we need to embrace God's mercy towards us. It's not based on my performance or not based on the fact that I've done enough or I'm good enough. It's based upon Christ's performance and that he's done enough and that he's good enough. It's paid, it's covered, it's forgiven. And when God looks at us, he doesn't see all of our failings, all of our faults, uh, all of our mistakes, all of our sins. He sees the spotless perfection of Jesus. There's no way that we'll treat people with unconditional love if we think that God loves me because I've done enough. If I don't accept mercy, then I can't give it out because I haven't even understood it in my own life. So how does valuing mercy over sacrifice affect our relationships? Would it mean keeping score less? Would it mean putting up with difficult people longer? Forgiving someone 70 times 7? For those of you who are in leadership, are you known as a merciful boss or as a difficult boss, a nitpicker? 
Parents, are we focusing on the hearts of our children more than we focus on the rules we expect them to follow? Many people who grew up in Christian homes or in strict homes obsessively follow the rules their whole life, and then when they get out into the world, everything falls apart for them because the rules that they followed are no longer there or they don't seem to work, and their whole worldview falls apart. Because, maybe because they learned to love and trust the structures and the rules rather than to love and trust the person of Jesus. Does loving mercy over sacrifice mean being around sinners more? Who do you picture in your mind's eye when you read uh, this section when it says, and there were sinners there at Matthew's house? Who do you picture? I don't like think of a banker or an IRS auditor when I think of sinner like they do. So use your imagination a little bit. Like, who do you think of when I say sinner, when it says sinners were there? Who in our day and age would it be scandalous for you to be seen with or to minister to or to love? Here's one example that came uh, to my mind. Rochelle Starr uh, was driving by a local strip club in Louisville, Kentucky, when she received an intense burden from God for the women who worked there. She and some of the women from her church prayed about it and later went into the strip club one day and asked the owner if they could, in the name of Jesus, provide meals for the women who worked there. The people in the club were shocked that church people would want to do this. They've seen church people before holding signs out front and shouting things before, but never somebody come in and offering mercy. And no doubt a lot of people who heard the term strip club ministry are pretty scandalized by that idea, (laughs) right? So that's a pretty risky or pretty scandalous ministry to start. (laughs) But by faithfully showing love and compassion to these marginalized, addicted, uh, abused women, uh, Rochelle was able uh, to show many of them a way out of their lifestyle. And uh, many of them found Jesus because of it. Rochelle founded an organization called Scarlet Hope, which includes a job program, Bible study groups, and a Louisville bakery that is 100% staffed by women who have left the sex industry. Jesus showed mercy to people, not by shaming them into obedience, not by shaming them out of their sinful lifestyle, by scandalously loving them out of their sinful lifestyle. Jesus didn't shame people out of their sinful lifestyle. He loved them out of their sinful lifestyle. Um, I've been to uh, take the risk of, of seeming like a, even more of a nerd than I already come across as. I've been reading uh, a lot of poetry lately, and I find that I have a couple of books of devotional poetry, which um, is really helpful, I think, to uh, read uh, an author who 
has taken these concepts about God and put them into beautiful language or put them in a different way that sometimes you have to sit back and think with, think about for a little bit. Uh, and uh, something that a passage that I read that was really uh, profound and beneficial and was in the back of my mind as I read these passages from Jesus is uh, from Shakespeare's uh, The Merchant of Venice. In Act 4 and Scene 1, uh, what's happening is there's this guy named Antonio, and he owes this huge debt uh, to this moneylender named Shylock. And he owes so much, in fact, that it's perfectly uh, right for Shylock when he calls in the debt to uh, demand the life of Antonio, because Antonio can't pay it. And so Shylock is in court trying to get the death penalty for Antonio. And the lady named Portia stands up in court to defend Antonio. And Shylock asks her why he should show mercy and not justice to Antonio. So Portia says, The quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven upon the place beneath. It is twice blessed. It blesseth him that gives and him that takes. Shakespeare gets it. He gets what mercy is. The quality of mercy is not strained. It's not a burden when you're merciful to people. Sometimes we think that's going to be hard. Uh, and maybe it's hard to get started. But once you're merciful to somebody, you're not going to be drained by it. In fact, as you show mercy, mercy is something that is twice blessed. It, get, it blesses the giver and it blesses the receiver. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. She continues on. She says to Shylock, Though justice be thy plea, consider this. In the courts of justice, none of us should see salvation. We all do pray for mercy. And that same prayer does teach us all to render the deeds of mercy. I have spoken thus much to mitigate the justice of thy plea. So she says, you want justice. Well, if we applied justice to everybody here, we would all be found guilty. We all desire mercy from other people in our lives. We've all been in situations where we've wronged someone, and we know that we deserve for them to come down hard on us, and yet we ask them for mercy. We ask them for forgiveness. Who deserves mercy? Nobody. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. If true justice is upheld, we would all be without hope. Jesus says in Matthew 7 in the Sermon on the Mount that all of the law and the prophets come down to this. What we know is the golden rule. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. We all desire mercy. We all depend on mercy. first few verses of Hosea chapter 6 is this call to return to the Lord. He says, Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revive us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is sure as the dawn. 
He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. We all do pray for mercy. And God's mercy comes to us as the gentle rain from heaven on undeserving people. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. Um, it's, so, it's so easy when how we've wronged you. Uh, we beg 